0: We are in the fourth of the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Uh, One of the challenges of going verse by verse through scripture, through books of the Bible, is sometimes things can sound a bit uh, repetitive, even redundant. Uh, For example, through the years, how many times have we talked about false teachers and sexual immorality? I, I know, too many to count to include last week. Here we go again. Uh, the truth is it's all over the Bible, meaning apparently it was quite widespread and important. And so most New Testament books contain some warning about false teachers. Many of these letters to the seven churches talk about false teaching. Ba- teachers Balaam, the Nicolaitans, today the false prophetess Jezebel. And, and we will find, again, these false teachers in Ephesus and Pergamum and, and uh, Thyatira seem to be cut out of the same cloth. They. Well, they they seem to be teaching the same heresies, Uh, not unlike today. So uh, a reasonable question you perhaps have is why not just skip it and move on down the road, literally, to Sardis? I mean, do we have to hear about sexual immorality and idolatry again? It's a reasonable question, so so, so let me answer. Uh, we, uh, We won't skip for the following three reasons. First, it's in the Bible. And we do go verse by verse, believing this is all God's Word and therefore relevant to us. And if God didn't sense the necessity to skip it, you know, to write to six churches instead of seven, then we won't skip it either. And second, if this was, if this was prevalent then and needed then, how much more today? And third, I don't want to speed through the first five chapters because the sixth chapter awaits, I'm dragging this out as long as I can. Which brings us to our text, the letter to the church of Thyatira. Let's talk about that city uh, before we read the letter. Thyatira was about 40 miles to the southeast of Pergamum. Uh, notice we're, we're, go- we're going in a bit of a clockwise uh, circle like you would go on a postal ra- uh, 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 route. Now, Thyatira was the smallest and actually least important of the seven Cities. One commented, the longest and most difficult of the seven letters is addressed to the least known, least important, and least remarkable of the cities, which tells me that all churches are actually important to Christ. As with Smyrna and Pergamon, the the book of Acts does not record the founding of this particular church. We assume assume that it was while uh, Paul spent over two years in, in Ephesus. However, there is another intriguing possibility and during Paul's second missionary journey, he, he visited the churches of Galatia, which were planted on his first missionary journey, delivering the decision made by the apostles and the elders during the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Now, we normally think of the first council of the Christian church as the council of Nicaea in 325, but actually the first council was in New Testament times in Acts 15. You, you remember that council. It was called to deal with the question regarding those pesky Gentiles becoming believers in Jesus and becoming part of the church. What are we going to do with them? Now, some Jewish believers were suggesting they needed to be circumcised. And, well, and they need to keep the law of Moses. Of course, the Jews had never been able to keep the law. So why impose that on the Gentiles? Uh, further, circumcision didn't make you a Christian. So why require it? And, well, Gentiles throughout the empire breathed a sigh of relief. Instead, the council decided on four things, the following four things for Gentile believers. First, they should abstain from things like food, sacrificed to and therefore contaminated by idols. That, that sounds familiar. Second and third, they should abstain from blood and things strangled. These would have been offensive to their Jewish brothers and sisters. And fourth, they should abstain from sexual immorality. Hmm, that sounds familiar. So the Jerusalem council decided to send Paul and Barnabas, who then chose Silas and John Mark to go separately, to, to report the decision of the council to the Gentile churches. Thus, Paul began with Silas, his began his second missionary journey. So again, they traveled throughout the churches of Syria, Cilicia, and, and Galatia. They then intended to go to Western Turkey to Asia Minor and then to Northern Turkey. It's called Bithynia, but they were prevented from doing so by the Holy Spirit. So instead, they traveled to the port city of Troas, where Paul received a, a rather famous vision. You know it. A man appeared to Paul, uh, uh, pleading for him to come to the to to the Mas- to Macedonia and to help them. We call it the Macedonian Call. Paul rightly understood the call was from the Spirit, so they traveled across the northern edge of the Aegean Sea, ultimately making their way to Philippi. There on the Sabbath day, they went to a nearby river seeking a place of prayer. And, but there were a group of women gathered there, and so they began to share the gospel. And we read these words in Acts chapter 16. Now, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. A seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to things spoken by Paul. Let me stop right there. I love this. One of my favorite verses in the Bible because it speaks well of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God had to open her heart or she never would have understood and she had to respond to human responsibility or she never would have been saved. God's sovereignty, human responsibility found together in one verse. It's glorious. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to uh, to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. It's interesting. And notice the man from Macedonia was actually a woman from Asia Minor. (laughs) Is it possible, I'm just suggesting, that she returned to her hometown and started the church there? Notice she was a merchant and a God-fearer. A God-fearer means that she worshipped the God of Israel. But that wasn't enough. You see, she needed to know the Jewish Messiah named Jesus. You can worship even the God of the Old Testament, but you still need to know Jesus. She and her household believed and were baptized. You see, that's what you do when you're, when you're saved. You, you're, you're baptized. And this is the first mention of Thyatira. That is, while Paul is on his second missionary journey delivering this decision of the Jerusalem council that... <laughs> Gentile believers abstain from food sacrificed to idols and from sexual immorality because you know, you see, it's everywhere. Back to Thyatira, it was originally built, interestingly, as a military outpost to guard Pergamum. You see, if you were an army coming from the east, you would go up this valley that the road led through Thyatira on the way to Pergamum, an important city. So they put this outpost there, which meant that it was constantly invaded and destroyed. It really wasn't of much geographical uh, uh, importance for a military outpost. But finally, it came under Roman rule and the Pax Romana uh, in 190 B.C. It was located on that important north-south route connecting Pergamum to Sardis and Laodicea, for example. Um, So as a result, Thyatira became a flourishing commercial city. This is important. a, A flourishing commercial city. Now, the story of the merchant, this seller of purple, Lydia, gives us a bit of a clue as to the commercial importance and economic structure or makeup of this city. You see, the city was known... For its merchant guilds, of which Lydia was likely a part. I mean, they had guilds. Think of them as labor unions for about everything. And again, they were known throughout Western Turkey for that. There were guilds for wool and dyed goods, especially purple dyed goods from the purple dye of the matter root. Put that on the screen. You can kind of see the purple uh, tinge there. If you want, you can go online and you can order Nike tennis shoes that are dyed with this particular root. They had guilds for every kind of textile to include linen workers and outer garments and dyers and leather workers and tanners. Um, there were guilds for potters and for bakers and cobblers and, and um, slave dealers and metal workers to include a special kind of bronze. Hold on to that. We'll come back to that. Why is all of that important? Because to belong to a guild as a business person, a businesswoman, businessman, was an economic Necessity. Well, it wasn't required. It was the center of religious, social, and business life. And you had to participate in in, uh, the celebrations and festivals of your particular guild. In fact, each guild had its own patron god. And you were required to participate in the frequent celebrations of that god, complete with, well, you guessed it, food, sacrifice to idols, and sexual immorality, Christians face the dilemma then of either denying their faith or compromising their faith by attending these pagan festivals, or they could choose to be faithful and be ostracized and potentially lose their livelihood. Oh, you should also know, by the way, that the patron god of Thyatira was Apollo. He's the sun god or the god of light. More importantly, he's the sun, the son of Zeus. All that then brings us to our text, Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29, the end of the chapter. That's right, 12 verses, buckle up. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and, and, and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and, and that your deeds are uh, of late are greater than it at first, but I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds and I will This is Jesus. And I will kill her children with pestilence. It's actually the word death. I will kill her children with death. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds, until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, And as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As usual, we will uh, cover that seven-part outline of which this letter contains, well, all seven, but there is a a small change. Those last two points, the call to hear the Spirit and the promise to the overcomer is is actually reversed and it actually remains reversed in the final four letters, probably not any great significance other than this. John's call to repentance or change it's so strong that he jumps right to the promise to those who do so. Because to not do so is a problem. Yeah, we've looked at Thyatira, so let's look at Christ's self-description in verse 18. Notice what he says first. The Son of God. Stop right there. This is the only place in... Um, Uh, in these seven letters, in fact, in the entire book of Revelation, that Jesus uh, is called the Son of God. Yeah, there are other places where we see this father-son relationship, but this is the only place He's called the Son of God. In fact, the description in chapter 1, in the description of chapter 1, John says that Jesus is one like, what, a son of man. Uh, certainly that could be a nod to his humanity, but, but actually, more rightly, it's a clear reference to Daniel 7. We looked at that, you remember, where one like the Son of Man approached the ancient of days and received dominion and glory and an everlasting kingdom such that all the peoples of the earth will, uh, might serve him. Uh, the, the point being, the Son of Man is more an exclusive title of Christ. But, but, but here, Jesus calls himself the Son of God, also a clear declaration of deity. And and we we see it in Psalm 2, which, by the way, John quotes at the end of this letter. We'll get to that. But, But why would he do that? Why here, of all places, does he call himself the Son of God? Well, because the patron god of Thyatira was Apollo, the son of Zeus. He was even called the Son of God. Well, Jesus is making it abundantly clear who the true Son of God is. That's important, you see, because we're going to find that the false teacher Jezebel was suggesting that you could worship in the pagan temple. (laughs) You can worship a false god. You can worship a false Son of God without problem. Really? You can do that? Further, Jesus says he is the son of God who has eyes like flames of fire, which speaks of penetrating. We saw this in chapter one, clear and, 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 and gaze of judgment. He had feet like burnished bronze. Told you in chapter one, this is a unique word, which only found here and in chapter one in all of the Bible. In fact, in all of Greek literature. But you should also know this. The, the bronze metalworking in Thyatira was special. It was unique. They had a process uh, which made their bronze superior, a combination of zinc and copper, as I recall. Uh, They they even were contracted to make this special bronze for the Roman military. The, The readers would have made the connection immediately. Jesus' feet burnished bronze, this best bronze by which he would stomp out all falsehood. This brings us to the commendation of the church in verse 19, and it's a great commendation. He starts with the typical, I know your deeds. Remember, blazing eyes, penetrating insight. I know your deeds, and I see them, and they're they're good, and he lists them. I know of your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance. Again, that's all great. Remember, Ephesus was doing good deeds, but... Well, they had no love. Not this church. Jesus starts with what could be called the hallmark of the Christian faith. I know your love. Apparently, so does everyone else. That's great. I know your faith, uh, your faith in me and your, and your faith in the gospel and your consequent faithfulness. Is it faith or faith? It's both. You can't separate them. It's all good. I know your, of, of your subsequent service. Uh, That's important. They weren't just doing good things because to check a box for for good things sake. No, they were involved, they were motivated, they served, motivated by love and faith. Now, not only that, you have persevered. In the midst midst of a culture that demands polytheistic worship, you have persevered in the faith such that your works are now even greater than at the first would you think of the contrast from that first letter, the letter to Ephesus? In fact, John only uses the word agape, love, two times in the entire book. It's in chapter 2. One talking about how Ephesus didn't have love and one how Thyatira does. Which one do we want to be? Incredible commendation, statements that we could should pray would be true of us, that we be a loving, faithful, serving, persevering group of people, even as hostility and opposition grows. Jesus, though, is not quite done, bringing us to the correction of the church, and it's a frankly long and strong one, but I have this against you, that you tolerate. Now remember Pergamum, they had among them Thyatira has taken it one step further. They tolerate the woman, Jezebel. Now, Jezebel was not likely her real name. I mean, we don't even call our dogs Jezebel, and there's a reason for that we'll come back to. It's probably an epithet that John attached to her. You see, Jezebel was an evil woman, perhaps one of the most evil, and by this time was seen as the personification of evil. You'll remember she was the wife of wicked King Ahab of the northern kingdom of Israel. We first meet, uh, we're first introduced to this couple in 1 Kings chapter 16. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. Ahab, son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 miserable years. Ahab uh, did evil in the sight of the Lord. More than all who were before him came about as though he had, it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, who was terrible. It was a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jer- Jeroboam, the son of ne- uh, ne- uh, Nebat, that he married Jezebel, a Phoenician, not a Jew, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. And so he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Stop right there. Do you see what he did? He built a temple to Baal in the northern kingdom. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. This was one unholy ungodly couple. Ahab and his wicked wife led the northern kingdom into blatant and atrocious idolatry, worship of Baal, worship of Asherah. You remember they eventually did battle with Elijah on Mount Carmel. You can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 18. I won't recount the details, but 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah were called by King Ahab to Mount Carmel, and and, and we read by the way that these 400, 450 850 False prophets ate at Jezebel's table. Mount Carmel, they each, the false prophets on one side and Elijah on the other, erected an altar with a sacrifice on it. It's a humorous story. You can read it. Prophets of Baal and Asher tried all day to get him to respond to their sacrifice. The whole time Elijah goaded them. Maybe he's on a... Trip. maybe he's asleep, maybe he's relieving himself in the bathroom, all to no avail. Elijah then began to show off. He had them dig a trench around his altar and flooded the altar, not once, but three times with water, such that the water began to pour out the side of the trench. He then prayed a simple prayer. Fire came from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. He then had all the false prophets seized, 850 of them, led them to the brook Kishon at the bottom of the valley and slaughtered them there. You say, ah. All that blood and gore. Well, that's Old Testament. Hold on. Hold on. There's so many other evil stories about Ahab and Jezebel. Finally, it comes to a head, and Elijah prophesies that Ahab and his descendants will be killed. As far as Jezebel, the Lord spoke to her, the dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel, which is why you don't name your butt dog. Jezebel why 1 Kings 21 surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because his wife incited him it matters you see who you marry I could preach a whole sermon on that one I won't that's the picture Jezebel was an evil woman who led Israel to worship false gods back to Revelation 2 and the church in Thyatira. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Notice she calls herself. She's not one. She's a false prophetess. She teaches and leads my bondservants. That means my people. Leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. In the church. How does she do that? Lots of discussion. Most agree that she likely told the church it's okay to gather in your f- guild festivals and eat food sacrificed to idols, engage in sexual immorality. She could have misused Jesus' words, rendered to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. She could have misused Paul's words in First Corinthians eight when he said, "An idol is nothing. We 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 know there are no gods but but one, the the one we serve." So. Why not eat in violation of the word of God for your economic prosperity and livelihood? And really, what does a little sexual immorality matter? It's just going along to get along, right? Everybody does it. And in order to be accepted, do you see the rationalizations? Even in your own mind? I want you to understand that we are a significant minority in the church and becoming an even greater minority who believe that sexual relations are to be reserved for a man and his wife. Not outside of marriage, not before marriage, certainly not outside of how God defines marriage between a man and a woman. Yes, we are in the minority. So what will we do? as many have done, just go along to get along. I want you to understand the opportunities for sexual immorality are as prevalent, perhaps more than in the days of Revelation. They engaged in sexual immorality because everyone did, much the same as today. What excuses and rationalizations can we use? How about idolatry? (laughs) How is the sin in the church today? Right. Uh, Listen very carefully. An idol, take a note, write this down, can be defined as the controlling center of your life, the last in a series of priorities to go, that for which you would sacrifice everything, that which is most important to you. The last in a series of priorities to go, that which you would, uh, the controlling center of your life, that which you, for which you would sacrifice everything, and that which is most important to you. Listen, idols don't have to be little fat statues. They can be anything that you put, listen, before your commitment to Christ. I know we're in church. You say, I don't put anything before my commitment to Christ. Ask your wife, ask your children on Tuesday. What is that for you? What is it in your life that sits on the throne of your heart? What needs to go so that God will be all in all? Now listen, many of those things can be good things. I'm not suggesting you get rid of your wife or your kids. But if they are more important to you than Jesus, you've got to change your priorities. And your kids know. And your spouse knows. Jesus goes on in verses 21 to 23 with a stunning, stunning pronouncement of judgment. I gave her, that is Jezebel, time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Not only is she encouraging her followers to engage in sin, she is doing so herself. But don't miss what Jesus said. I give her, even evil Jezebel, time to repent. Listen very carefully. It does not matter what you have done. How evil you have been, even in the church and to the church, like Jezebel, Jesus is calling you to repent. Hear his invitation. He loves you, and he's calling you to repent. And he will forgive you. It's what he does. But don't miss this either. Refuse to repent, continue in your sin, and his patience will finally run out. Those of you who think I can live like the devil and give my life one day to Christ, his patience will finally run out. Remember divine sovereignty and human responsibility? He opens your heart to respond to the message. His patience wears thin. Verse 22, behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness. And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, it's not talking the tribulation in the rest of the book. Right now, great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. Again, Jesus is giving her followers time to repent but for her, he will throw her, he will cast her into a bed of sickness. I love, every once in a while, i hear people say something like, God never makes anyone sick. They haven't read the Bible. Yes, he does. He does it often for punishment. Now, he, he could have just killed her, but again, he gave her more, uh, one more chance to repent. And you say, Wow. Hold off there, Scott, that sounds so unkind. You make Jesus to be a monster who will just kill people with little provocation. That's our problem. We minimize sin and rebellion against the Holy God of the universe. And I want to suggest to you that God loved, Jesus loves his church and he will not tolerate attacks against her, even though the church of Thyatira did, even though sometimes we do. False teaching in the church is a serious matter. Sinning against the body of Christ is a serious matter that invites divine justice. You remember in Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the church about how much money they'd received for selling a piece of land. Everyone was selling what they had to, to lay it at the apostles' feet to take care of the needs of the church. And then as the, Sapphira, both of them knew what they sold it for, they came and brought a portion of that to Peter, laid it at his feet. Seems such a small thing to misrepresent the total to the church. But Peter said, you have not lied to men, but to God. And both of them dropped dead. Who do you suppose killed them? That's Old Testament. No, it isn't. First Corinthians chapter 11, we read that some in the church were taking the Lord's Supper, communion, which we will do shortly in an unworthy manner. What was an unworthy manner? They were eating and drinking without regard to others in the church. And as a result, some of them were sick and some had even died. Who do you think did that? For this reason, Paul says, we ought to examine ourselves before taking up communion to make sure our hearts are clean and right before the Lord and, by the way, before one another, because Jesus loves his church. We can give all, listen, we can give all kinds of reasons for separating from the church. There's because a good friend of mine says there's no hurt like church hurt. I get it. All kinds of reasons from separating from the church. You can't do that. You've got to love the church. I will throw her into a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds, and I will kill her children with death. Those who commit adultery with her are probably those enticed by her false teaching. Notice he gives an opportunity to repent. Those who are already fully in her grasp for children, he will, he will kill. Remember, this is Jezebel. And in the, Old Testament, Jezebel, in the Old Testament, Jezebel, all of her children were killed in one day, their heads carried in a basket. That's so terrible. In some way, they will receive the just penalty for their sin against Christ and his church? Could it be a premature death of judgment, or could it be the second death? Because false teaching will not be tolerated in the church. I'm going to say something provocative. If you don't like it, it's fine. Tomorrow's July 4th. See, celebration of the founding of our nation. I consider myself a patriot. I love being an American. I love this country. Tomorrow we will, we w- we will celebrate. I will be at the J- July 4th, or it'll be, no, it's tonight, isn't it? I'll be at the Greenway if I s- might see you there. I love our founding documents, Declaration of Independence. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary, blah, blah, blah. I love the, Later, the U.S. Constitution. I love these documents. Constitution, 1787, the Constitutional Convention was called. It wasn't ratified until 1789 because they had to add the Ten Amendments called the Bill of Rights. We love our amendments, especially the Bill of Rights. We love them. We hear about them all the time, especially the First Amendment. We love our freedoms, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, and freedom of the press, and freedom of uh, assembly, freedom of religion. Here's the provocative statement. Have you ever stopped to think that God does not believe in freedom of religion? I'm not saying it should not be part of our Constitution. That's not what I'm saying. But there's coming a day when everyone will stand before the great white throne judgment and they will be judged. And if they hold up the U.S. Constitution and say amendment one says right here that I can worship however I want, God's not gonna say, oh, well come on in. End of aside and provocation. As a result, all these churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, penetrating gaze, f- flaming all-seeing eyes. Nothing is hidden from him with whom we have to do. What th- when this happens, when I kill them, all the churches, the other six churches and all of the churches today will know that I love my church and I will protect her. I will give to each one according to their deeds, a- Direct allusion to Jeremiah 17, I, the Lord. This is important This is a direct allusion because now Jesus is saying it. And there Yahweh said it. I, the Lord, search the hearts; I test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. This is not to be clear. Works salvation, but an understanding that if you know Christ, your consequent works will receive reward. If you do not know Christ, your consequent works will prove that you do not n- know him. They don't deserve reward. In fact, you will receive retribution. That's what it means. This point in verse 24, Jesus encourages his church, true believers, to those who have not, who do not hold this false teaching. Now, Thyatira, you've tolerated it, and now I'm stepping in to have to do something about it because you haven't, but he encourages them, those who have not, Not known the deep things of Satan as they call them. Stop right there a moment. What are the deep things of Satan? There are two possibilities. Some suggest Jesus, through John, is being sarcastic. That Jezebel and her followers were saying, we know the real truth. We know the deep things of God as they call them. And Jesus here says they are actually the deep things of Satan. Or, secondly, it's possible that this teaching, and I know this is gonna sound crazy, but they actually did this. This teaching allowed for diving deep into the things of Satan so that you would know him and his schemes better. That being involved in idolatry was was really nothing. It was just a reconnaissance mission uh, to know Satan better. Sounds ludicrous, but certainly it's possible. Jesus condemns the teaching nonetheless, whichever of those two that it means. To those who do not hold this teaching, I put no other burden on you than this. Listen, listen, this is what I want you to do. Church, followers of Jesus, people of Alliance Bible Fellowship, uh, hold fast to what you have until I come. Do not give in to the culture. Don't give in to false teaching. Don't compromise. Don't tolerate. Don't give in to the enticements of sexual immorality. Hold on because I am coming. Brings us quickly to the promise of the overcomers. To those who hold on in verses 26 to 28, the overcomer will receive two things. Before we get to those two things, I want you to notice who the overcomer is. It's not necessarily in this verse the one who repents and does the deeds they did at the first, because they were already doing that, like Ephesus. It's not the one who stays faithful in the midst of persecution, it could be like Smyrna, but not necessarily. It's not the one who repents and doesn't give into the teaching of Nicolaitans like Pergamon. Certainly it includes not giving into, further not tolerating the teaching of false teachers like Jezebel, giving into idolatry and sexual immorality. It certainly it could be those things, but Jesus says, he who overcomes all that and who keeps my deeds until the end. Wow. Wait a minute. You mean it's not just that time that I pray to prayer? To so the one who overcomes by resisting sin, yes, but also the one who overcomes by keeping my deeds. Again, this is not worth salvation, earning your salvation. It, it is the one who perseveres and proves he is truly redeemed who will be rewarded. Remember the author of Hebrews said it this way. I love this verse. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end. Wait just a minute. Wait, 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 wait. I don't like that. We are partakers of Christ if we hold fast firmly till the end. Yes. What if we don't? Then the opposite of this verse is also true. For we have not become partakers of Christ if we do not hold fast firm to the end. In other words, if we do not hold fast, we were never partakers. Lots of people in the church of Jesus Christ are deconverting. It's a nice word. It's apostatizing, walking away from the faith. Some of you are considering it. Some of your children have, as have mine, some who have actually grown up in this church. What are we to make of that? That they have lost their salvation or that they were never partakers? So, what do we do? We pray for God to open their heart to respond to the message. Notice the, now notice the promise very quickly. I'm almost done. To the one who remains faithful, proving the reality of saving faith, he, will, he or she will rule with me. That is incredible. It's unbelievable. Jesus applies Psalm 2 to his followers. Look at verse 26 and 27. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. That is a direct quote of Psalm chapter 2, a direct quote speaking of the Son of God, which is why Jesus goes on to say, as I also received authority from my Father. But now he says, unbelievable, that we will do the same. We will co-reign with Christ again under God's authority. Absolutely amazing. Do not miss this. Those who have opposed you, opposed believers, will be ruled with a rod of iron and, if necessary, broken to pieces. I want to say very gently, but very clearly, that's what awaits you if you deconvert, if you walk away from the faith. We will suffer now by being faithful followers, but ultimately the just will receive their reward and the unjust their retribution. Finally, I will give give him the morning star. Lots of discussion about that very quickly. Many agree it has to do with the fulfillment of the messianic promises to believers. Yes, Christ is the bright and morning star, and so we receive him and all of his promises to us. That's what we get. Who has an ear? Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Four down, three to go. Ultimately, the problem in Thyatira was an unhealthy tolerance. The same in our country today. I say unhealthy tolerance because tolerance has been redefined to be acceptance. That's unhealthy tolerance. They recognize the problem of the false prophetess. They recognize the evil character of her teaching, but they tolerantly refuse to deal with her, as many churches are doing today, not just tolerating, but accepting. Inherent was perhaps a hidden motive, namely an unwillingness to suffer persecution for the sake of Christ. If we don't go... Along to get, if we, if we don't go along to get along. If we speak out against the things that our culture is doing, they're not going to like me exactly. Jesus said something against them. If the conditions which existed in the church at Thyatira can ex- exist at any time in any church, then the lessons for us are at least four whole, fourfold. Just four, four or five senses. We cannot tolerate sin or false teaching in the church. For fear of persecution. In a country which elevates tolerance to be the highest virtue, we must remember that tolerance may actually be sin itself and bring judgment. Second, teaching that accepts any form of idolatry must be exposed and removed. Third, it is never right for Christians to participate in sexual immorality. I don't care if everyone is doing it. I don't care if that's the invitation. We cannot involve ourselves in the licentious lifestyles of unbelievers. Fourth, sin in the church, which is not dealt with, will bring divine judgment. Let's pray. Father, these are very, very hard letters written to the Church of Jesus Christ within 40 years of their founding. That's interesting. We're 44 years old. The Church of Jesus Christ has been around for 2,000 years. How many times did these letters need to be read in the churches? how much do these letters need to be read in the church of Jesus Christ today? And so, Father, help us to be ones who have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. I pray this in Christ's name.